Let's now turn to Psalm 138. I will praise you with my whole heart. Before the gods I will sing praises to you. I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word above all your name. In the day when I cried out, you answered me and made me bold with strength in my soul. All the kings of the earth shall praise you, O Lord, when they hear the words of your mouth. Yes, they shall sing of the ways of the Lord. For great is the glory of the Lord. Though the Lord is on high, yet he regards the lowly. But the proud he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand will save me. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. Your mercy, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the works of your hands. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in verse 1, in the first part of verse 2 of this psalm, we have the expression of a resolution, a determination to render to God wholehearted worship and praise. And then the rest of verse 2 and verse 3, uh, presents to us the reasons for such praise because of God's loving kindness and truth, because of the greatness of his word, which the psalmist has also experienced in the form of, of deliverance and help from God in time of need. The experience confessed here is uh, personal, uh, but it is not unique, and it's not uh, based on the psalmist's own subjective feelings or his own interpretation of life but rather it's based upon uh, God's saving purpose. All the kings of the earth shall praise you, O Lord, when they hear the words of your mouth. They shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. So this reason for praise is based upon the knowledge of the ways of the Lord, which now in Christ have been published uh, throughout the world. And the confidence that is expressed in this psalm is also a confidence that belongs to the church of Jesus Christ. In him, the assurance that is expressed in our text, especially verse 8, is the kind of assurance that is our our heritage, if you will, in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful expression of the assurance of salvation that we have in verse 8, that we're going to focus on specifically. And uh, we might say that assurance of faith is not uh, silent. It, it has a voice. It comes to expression in words of praise and thanksgiving and confession. Confession of the, the great uh, confidence that we have that leads us to say, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And forget not all his benefits. Bless the Lord, O my soul, who forgives all your iniquities. That's the language of joy and confidence and assurance. It's been a tradition in Reformed churches in times past to uh, uh, not only give a preparatory sermon prior to the Lord's, uh, the Lord's Supper, but also to give an applicatory sermon after the Lord's Supper. Now, we don't, we don't follow that. It's not in our church order, but 
it's a long-standing tradition that's been observed in many churches. And sometimes I try to um, deviate maybe from a series that I'm on to to preach a preparatory sermon and an applicatory sermon. You might say this is an applicatory sermon. It's a sermon also from a psalm that is really geared to give expression to uh, the Christian's confidence in the Lord, to give expression to the assurance that we have of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord gives us the language of assurance in his word, and it's good for us to learn that language. It's good for us to treasure up uh, verses that really express that confidence of faith and to make them our own. And I hope that by giving attention to uh, verse 8 uh, this evening, that this earth verse will become more familiar to you and more precious to you in such a way as to make it your own. What we have here is a humble claim of assurance. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. And in connection with assurance, let's note, first of all, that uh, the psalmist confesses the Lord's work. And so assurance is not self-confidence. Assurance doesn't say, I can look after myself. I can take care of my own concerns. Assurance of faith doesn't say that my faith is strong enough. I'll never be led astray. We hear that kind of language from Peter, right? When he said, though all should deny you, yet not I. And we saw how that turned out. We should never say, I would never do such a thing. That really can express what the Apostle Paul calls confidence in the flesh. Confidence in ourselves. Rather than confidence in the Lord. The language of assurance doesn't begin with I and my. But begins with the Lord and his faithfulness. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. The Lord works everything or anything that is good in me. That's part of the believer's acknowledgement of God's grace. Not only in terms of pardon, but whatever sanctifying grace we may possess, it's all of his work. If I work the work of faith, if I increase in faith, if I grow in obedience, it's because he works in me. Now, we're called to be diligent. We're called to pursue good works. We're called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But the assurance that we can take one step in that direction and the, the reason for optimism is that God works in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. So everything that we do in the way of obedience is a result of God's working in us. I persevere, but only because of God's faithfulness to me. If I have boldness, uh, the boldness of faith, if I have spiritual strength in my soul, it's from God. In the day when I cried out, you answered me and made me bold with strength in my soul. A lot of people might have a kind of confidence and boldness, even a kind of assurance that everything's fine with them, they're going to heaven when they die. And yet that might be presumption. It's not based upon God's work. It might be based on something that they they think they've done or will do. We can take care of. But that's not biblical assurance. Biblical assurance is rooted in God's work. Biblical assurance is humble to trust in God for 
that which concerns me. That's the language of verse 8. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. In the previous verse, the psalmist says, Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand will save me. You, your, it's repeated numerous times. He speaks of different ways in which God shows his saving, his preserving, his uh, delivering grace. And it's as if when we come to verse 8, the psalmist then looks all around. Uh, he looks within. He looks to the future as if to say, whatever comes from any direction, whatever circumstances I might find myself in, whatever temptations I might face, whatever hardships I might suffer, you know what concerns me, not according to my feelings, not according to my wisdom, but what my real needs actually are. And that means that the psalmist is not simply expressing confidence that God will take care of the things that he's concerned about. Right? He's not simply talking about, well, the things that I'm concerned about, you'll look after them. No, we can be concerned about a lot of things. And uh, they may be far removed from what our actual concerns are in terms of what concerns us as God sees us and God knows us. We're reminded from our scripture reading that we, we don't know what to pray for as we ought. We need the Holy Spirit's help to lead us in prayer and to intercede for us with unutterable speech, words that we cannot even form, needs that we may not be able to adequately express. But the Holy Spirit intercedes for us in an effective way about the things that really concern us. See, what our real needs are, are often deeper than what we might be concerned about in terms of our feelings and our thoughts. We may be concerned about things that don't really touch our real need as God sees it. Now, we might want God to simply remove our concerns, that is, the things that concern us. If we're sick, we're concerned about it, and we want God to remove our sickness. Or if we face financial pressures, we may be concerned about that, and we want God to take the pressure off. We may suffer from loneliness or conflicts, and we may pray that these things may be removed. And we may do that. We certainly may. We may see God's mercy and help. But the assurance of our text is actually bigger and better than the simple removal of those concerns that we might have in terms of our feelings. God's concerns for us are greater, they're, they're truer. God is concerned, first of all, with our conformity to the image of Christ. God is concerned with things like uh, more fruitfulness in our service to his name, wider blessings on others. I read this, uh, this devotion from Abraham Kuyper, a book that has just been republished. It's called Honey from the Rock. It's meditations of Abraham Kuyper that he wrote as a young man that has been, I don't know if it's ever been in the English language before, but it's a wonderful book. And I read a meditation that he wrote concerning our sick and afflicted. 
referring to uh, the church, referring to the fact that there are not simply the sick among us and the afflicted, but there are sick. There are afflicted. They belong to the body of Christ. They belong to us as a family together. And we need to appreciate the significance of that. We need to appreciate what God does for the whole church through those who may be afflicted and those who may be suffering. His dealings with them is a message for all of us, teaching us humility, perhaps teaching us our own vulnerability, teaching us to have compassion, opening up ways of of service to others, affecting us in a great variety of ways, giving us examples of the sufficiency of God's grace to those who suffer, so that we might all benefit from our sick, our afflicted. Something to remember when we face hardships. God's concern with respect to us is not simply personal and individual, it also relates to how he would use us. And we can often, we can't foresee what God can do through such things. We are to be confident that he is able uh, to exceed, do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. He is able to look after what truly concerns us as to what is most important in our calling as his children. And that means that it's humble to resign ourselves to God's plan for us, because his plan may be far different than our own. And the claim of our text, it it recognizes that. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. Well, what does that involve? Well, I don't really know in detail, but we leave the details up to the Lord, because he knows. When my heart is overwhelmed within me, he knows the path that I take. He will perfect that which concerns me. See, it's in that context that we that we hear Romans 8, where it says, as all things work together for good to those that love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And the good there in that context, indeed, is conformity to Christ, God's saving, sanctifying work in us that takes place through all his dealings with his people. That's a solid uh, testimony of assurance. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. It's so broad. <clears throat> Secondly, we look at the unfailing basis for this assurance. Your mercy, O Lord, endures forever. Now that word mercy here, it's actually the same word that's translated in verse 2 with the word loving kindness. It's the same word. It's really a, a word that expresses God's covenant faithfulness. God's absolute loyalty and faithfulness and mercy, loving kindness, goodness towards us. It's a, it's a rich word that can't really be captured in one particular word, and that's why it's sometimes translated in various ways. But it's a rich word. How can you know that you will persevere in the faith is because of the sincerity of your faith that you feel uh, the service that you perform is it your willpower and determination or is it just because you're so special compared to who we say no none of these things the bottom line basis of our assurance 
is God's saving mercy in Christ. We heard God's appeal, or David's appeal rather, to God's mercy this morning in Psalm 130, where in verse 7 it says, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy. With the Lord there is mercy. And with him is abundant redemption. See, there these two things are joined together. With the Lord is mercy. With the Lord is abundant redemption. And that helps us to see that these are not really two separate or distinct things. But the Lord shows his mercy by way of his redeeming love and grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. His loving kindness has been demonstrated to us and for us in the gift of his son. He offered one sacrifice for us, for sins, forever. And now he always lives and continues forever to make intercession for us. And see, that's how we can have confidence that God, Christ, is able to save to the uttermost, to the nth degree, completely, perfectly, absolutely, forever. Because Christ lives forever. The one who died for us and the one who lives for us, who intercedes for us. God's mercy endures forever. That's the basis for this assurance that we confess together as his people. Your mercy, O Lord, endures forever. And we never move beyond this first ground of assurance. We must never forget it. The psalmist spoke of the perfection or the completion of God's work. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. And yes, that includes our sanctification. That includes our growing conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean sinless perfection in this life. We'll never reach that. But biblical assurance takes into full account the fact of our remaining sinfulness. But the fact of our remaining sinfulness, the ongoing struggle, and the ongoing failures in our battle with sin, it doesn't shake our confidence. Because though we continue to fall short, God continues his mercy towards us in Christ. Our acceptance with God at the start of the Christian life, if you will, is based upon Christ. And so our acceptance with God continues upon that basis. It's not as if, well, our acceptance with God begins in Christ and our justification. And from there on, our acceptance involves our justification, but also our sanctification as the basis for that acceptance. No, sanctification, as important as it is, doesn't shift the ground of our acceptance. That remains Christ alone. And therefore, it doesn't shift the ground of our assurance. The first ground of assurance are the promises of God in Christ. Yes, alongside with that, the testimony of a good conscience also has a role 
But that doesn't mean that the basis or the ground of our assurance is shifted in any way away from Christ to ourselves. The unfailing basis for assurance is God's saving mercy in Christ. And then thirdly, we listen to this plea that the psalmist makes at the end of our text, where he says, Do not forsake the works of your hands. And that sounds like a plea that God would not abandon him. And that might lead us to think, isn't there a kind of contradiction going on here? Isn't there some inconsistency uh, between this language and claim of faith on the one hand, and then a, a plea that God would not forsake him? No. No. The claim of believing confidence is also made with a sense of weakness and a true self-knowledge and a true self-distrust. And then that's another way of saying that faith is always an act of dependence upon God. Assurance of salvation is not something that, oh, I possess assurance of salvation, I keep it over here in a cupboard and I look at it once in a while. No, the assurance of salvation is enjoyed along the pathway of constant reliance upon Christ. These things go together. Assurance must be continually fed by a a self-emptying reliance upon God. And so there is no contradiction between the Lord will preserve me and preserve me, O Lord, for in you do I trust. Though the Lord is on high, yet he regards the lowly. The proud he knows afar off. And the lowly are characterized by continually, actively casting themselves upon God, deriving their assurance as the food and drink for their souls. Well, that's why Christ has appointed the sacraments for our assurance also, because we continually need to feed upon him by faith. We do that through the preaching of the word. We do that uh, through baptism and through uh, the Lord's Supper. God regards the lowly. And actually, when you look at this um, plea there at the end of verse 8, it's really quite powerful too. He says, do not forsake the works of your hands. The psalmist, in effect, is saying, I am your handiwork. We are the work of God's hands. And that could be understood in two ways from Scripture. We are the work of God's hands as his creatures. In Psalm 119, we read, Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. God has made us. He has absolute access to us. And that means that our maker can also give us understanding and effectively teach us his ways. Job also speaks of himself as as the work of God's hands in terms of his own existence, his own creations. Your hands have made me and fashioned me an intricate unity. Remember, I pray, that you have made me like clay, and will you turn me into dust again? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? 
Clothe me with skin and flesh, and knit me together with bones and sinews. You have granted me life and favor, and your care has preserved my spirit. So he is, he is pleading his creatureliness as made by God. And you might ask, well, how is that a, how is that a kind of plea that gives us comfort and ministers to our assurance, our confidence that God will hear us? Because after all, didn't God make everyone? Well, yes, he did. But not everyone has the humility and the knowledge of themselves before God to come before God and say, Lord, you have made me. I depend upon you for everything. Be merciful to me. Those kinds of prayers offered in humble faith in Christ are powerful. But added to that, and these really actually go together, this is a, a plea of God's handiwork as we are as we are creatures. Uh, but it's also a plea as those who are recreated, created anew spiritually. We honor God by such a plea, not simply as God the creator, but as God the one who has recreated us in Christ. In Psalm 100, that familiar psalm, we're called to give thanks to the Lord, for it is he who has made us, and not we ourselves. And then it says, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So we, those things ought to be joined together. This psalm is not simply an expression of the fact that God has made us, created us physically as human beings, but God has made us his people. God has formed us into his flock. By grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. It's the language of God's saving work. Isaiah 64 uses uh, such language also. But now, O oh Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. That's a plea for God's mercy and grace. A plea that's based upon God's work of grace. In other words, Christian assurance uh, draws consolation and comfort also from what God has already done in our lives. Right? Remember how Paul uh, comforts the Philippian believers when he says, uh, he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. I hope, brothers and sisters, that uh, this reflection serves to uh, establish and increase you more and more in your confidence, the saving work of God, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I close with these words of Second Thessalonians 2. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Amen.